Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 7, verses 17 through 11. We will read that passage here in just a second. This week I, um, I saw an article that ranked the top movie villains of all time. And of course, um, at the very top of that list was the iconic villain from Star Wars, right? Darth Vader. Now I'm sure there, you guys could probably think of some other villains from movies you've watched that would make that list. And, but one thing we all know is that any good story has to have a great villain in it. Even the tamest Disney movies have good, compelling bad guys. If it's going to have a good story, then you have to have a, a villain in it. Now, the reason that a good story must have a formidable villain in it is simply due to the fact that, that good stories are the ones that connect with the deep emotions of the human heart, meaning that they are stories that in some way resonate with our real life, with our human experience, with the, the human story that we are all going through. They correlate, they tie in to, to the story we find ourselves in. And we know that real life is filled with evil. There's villains all over the place. There are really clear bad guys uh, in this world. Like this week I read of a, of a, a woman in Cobb County who, who just a few days ago killed all of her children. The youngest one was nine months old. Or the villains that we see that come across our screens Your phones, your computers, your TV screens as you check the news pretty much every day these days is the terrorists, those ISIS guys. And they even look evil too. But from there it gets a little bit more complicated. For there are bad guys that some people call good guys and there are good guys that some people call bad guys. You see, each person's story is guided by his or her worldview. And your worldview determines who the heroes and the villains are. And I contend that the only worldview that really sees the world as it actually is, is the biblical worldview. But no matter what worldview lens you may be looking at your story through, the fact of the matter is there is one villain, one villain that is recognized by everyone. And no worldview construct, even the most unbiblical worldview or even atheistic worldview, can escape this villain. He roams seemingly unchecked, hunting down every human being. The Bible describes this villain with words that sound like they could have come out of a Hollywood screenplay. Revelation 6, verse 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his rider's name was Death. There he is. That's the villain of all mankind. His name is Death. And those who understand the world through a biblical worldview know that this villain came into the world. We know how this villain came into the world. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. But the biblical worldview also knows that for Christians, this villain is not to be feared. You see, in today's text, we see the first hints that death has met his match. So let's read this passage of Scripture that I've asked you to turn to already. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11 through verse 17. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. So please stand if you would. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of the reading of God's Word because we believe 
in what it is. It is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Verse 11 of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke says this. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I thank you so much for these these events that have been written down for us. We actually are at an advantage over many of those who followed Jesus around. Because many of those who followed Jesus around didn't get to see all these things. For whatever reason, whether... They, had, they couldn't be with him that day or they couldn't go to him to, with him to certain towns. But here we are, the collection of all these things. And so we have them before us to see and to savor who Jesus really is. So Lord, we thank you for your word and amazing true stories like this one. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would open up our hearts to understand what is being communicated here in this, this very amazing story Give us ears to hear and grant me a mouth to speak this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. As I mentioned earlier, we're jumping back into our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. This is a journey through the life of Christ. Uh, This sermon series began actually, I think, almost three years ago, back when, when Deemer was here. And at that time, we felt that there was a genuine lack of joy within our congregation. I remember being burdened about this and and spending significant amounts of time in prayer about this lack of joy that was in our church. It was like a wet blanket was just residing over our church. Those who were here at that time can remember that. And so what we did as we prayed about that was we felt the Lord leading us to go into this sermon series. And the aim being that if we see Christ more fully, we will worship him more rightly. So this is a verse-by-verse chronological walk through the life of Christ using all four of the Gospels. It's therefore a harmonizing of the Gospel narratives. And so by the end of this series, we will have essentially preached through every verse of the Gospels. And so we pick it back up today. And we left off back on November 16th before we broke away and did an Advent series and then did the series about the mission of the church. And when we left back in November 16th, Jesus was in Capernaum where he had performed the miracle of healing the centurion's servant. I don't know if you remember that sermon or not, but in that sermon, we saw some astonishing faith that this centurion possessed. Faith that acknowledged his own insufficiency and faith that recognized Jesus' supreme authority. And, as we saw in that text, a faith that previewed the kingdom's far-reaching diversity. For this was a Gentile putting all of his hope into the Jewish Messiah. 
And so today, that absolute power of Jesus is once again on display. And Luke sets the scene for us here in verse 11. It says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nine. Now, Nine was located about six miles southeast of Nazareth and about a day's journey from Capernaum, which is where Jesus was when we last saw when he healed the centurion's servant. The city was situated on a slope of a mountain called Mount Moreh. And city is probably a very generous word for this place called Nine. Um, Archaeologists have determined that Nine um, was a very small, remote village off the beaten path. It wasn't on any major thoroughfare. So when we read in verse 11 that he, Jesus, went to a town called Nine, well, that means that Jesus went out of his way to go to the middle of nowhere. He went out of his way to go off the beaten path. You see, important people, and Jesus' celebrity was growing at this point, important people don't visit the middle of nowhere. They go to important places, don't they? You know, my family grew up in south-central Kentucky in the middle of nowhere, in my dad's side of the family, I should say. I mean, my grandmother, uh, she's passed away now, but she lived in Park City, Kentucky, and Park City had, had one red light, and that was it, and they had one cop, and he usually sat at that one red light. I guess that's all he did all day, was to see if anybody ran the one red light. It was Park City, Kentucky, and it was near Mammoth Cave, but the city itself was just nothing. If you blinked, you, you miss it. You've totally missed the city. And I remember once, um, my grandmother told me, I came home for a, a summer break or something, and she said, oh, you'll never believe this. A famous basketball player visited the city. He came, and he actually went to Mammoth Cave, but he stopped, and she ran a campground. She stopped, and he came to the convenience store, and and I got his signature for you and everything. I was like, oh, wow. And this is the early 90s. I'm thinking, who is this? Is this Michael Jordan, Clyde Drexler? Who, who is this? You know, Patrick Ewing. Who is this that's come in? And, and she said, well, I've lost the signature. I'm like, oh, nanny. That was what I called her, nanny. Really? Goes, but, but, but he came in and he was, oh, everyone was just talking to him. And I said, well, who was it? And she said, I don't, he, was, he was tall and black. <laughs> nanny? That doesn't help me. That doesn't narrow it down enough. But this famous guy came to Park City, and she got his signature for me. And guess what? To this day, I have no idea who it was because she never found the signature. So to this day, I don't know. I may have somewhere in my grandmother's old stuff, which is packed away. Like I said, she's passed away now. Sitting in some dusty old bin somewhere is a signature. It's probably worth some money. I don't know. But the famous person came to Park City, and it made her day, and she was so excited, she got a signature for me, even though she lost it. So here we have Jesus, who is increasing in celebrity status all throughout Palestine, but particularly in Galilee, which is where Nine is found. Here is Jesus, this famous person visiting Park City, visiting Nine. And Jesus has something special in mind by going to this city. Now, I'm sure that No one in the crowd understood why Jesus was going to this meaningless little town. But as he entered the town, there he is with the twelve and with other disciples and a bunch of curiosity seekers. He had a crowd around him. And lo and behold, there was another crowd coming out of the city. So here's Jesus and a big crowd going into this little city. And there's another crowd coming out of the city. And we read in verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold... Now, literally, the word is, and look, you see it a lot in the Gospels. Behold, 
look. So he's drawing near to the city, and whoa, look, there's a crowd coming out of the city. It almost leaves us with the, with the feeling that this was just a coincidence. But I think that's intentionally put in there by the gospel writers to show us there aren't any coincidences in Jesus' timeline. It's kind of like when we say, well, wouldn't you know it? You know, I, wouldn't you know it? I, I went here, and, so, and that person was there. Wouldn't you know it? We're not necessarily saying it was a coincidence. We're saying, okay, that's the way it was expected to be. And so Jesus here is going into this town very intentionally. He knows exactly what he's doing. And behold, wouldn't you know it? Verse 12, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And what we have here is simply the description of a typical Jewish funeral. There will there be a professional mourners at the front of the procession, followed by the woman mentioned here, the widow, and then followed by those who were carrying the bier on which the body laid, wrapped in linen burial shrouds. And following the body would be relatives, friends, and others who came out to grieve with the widow. And in this case, according to Luke, it was a considerable crowd. Now, it's probably considerable because of the the particularly tragic situation that had befallen this woman. The focus of Luke's narrative here is certainly upon her plight. The man who had died was the only son of his mother, literally the only begotten son of his mother. And Luke goes on to tell us that she was also a widow. Now this is a very heart-rending situation. Without a male in her home, this woman had no protection And she had no provision. Her situation is absolutely devastating. You have to understand the hopelessness, the sadness, the desperation that must have been in the air that day. The future for this poor widow was bleak, to say the least. There are some, even in this room today, who are more acquainted with grief than others. There are some who have tasted the hopelessness that this woman tasted here. A hopelessness that no words can, can, can help. And in the midst of this bleak and hopeless procession, it's in the midst of this that Jesus shows up. Jesus, the source of eternal hope, shows up to this hopeless situation. And he shows up with compassion. And that's the first thing I want us to focus on this morning. So I want us to see and savor this astonishing miracle at Nain. For it, first of all, demonstrates the deep pity that Jesus has towards mortal men. Verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Now, Luke here, and he says, And when the Lord saw her, when he uses the, the phrase here, the Lord, this is the first time Luke is using the word Lord as a title for Jesus. Now, the word itself, the word Lord, has been used in Luke's narrative before by people using it as a polite greeting for Jesus. But now Luke uses it as a title. And when it's used as a title, it's a divine title. The Greek word is kurios. And that title means supreme master. And in the the Septuagint, it's it's invariably used for for the the divine name, for Yahweh and for Adonai. And so there's no doubt here that it's to be understood as a title for Jesus. Luke wants us to know who this Jesus really is and who he's about to demonstrate himself to be in these next few verses. Namely, the supreme authority over all the universe. The Lord saw her. So think about that. Put the title 
with what's happening here. The Lord, the supreme authority of the universe, the supreme master, Yahweh, Adonai, ruler of the universe, saw her. He sees the weak. He sees the vulnerable. He sees the poor. He sees the distraught. He takes notice of her and he has compassion on her. Remember, friends, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And therefore, it should not surprise us that he takes notice of the downtrodden and especially of widows. Psalm 68.5 tells us that our God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And he commands his covenant community in Exodus 22, 22, to not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. The orphan and the widow represent, in Scripture, the most vulnerable in society, especially in the ancient world. So our God condescends to be their defender, to be their protector. And from the moment sin entered the world, it had wreaked havoc on the family. And so God, in his great mercy, becomes a husband to the widow and a father to the orphan. Surely this is why the church is told that that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. In James chapter 1 verse 27, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To be part of what we're doing as a covenant community, not only because God's word says it, but because we're reflecting the nature of Christ in who we are. And so, the more we grow in Christ's likeness, the more our hearts ought to break for the fatherless and the widow. And so, when the Lord saw her here, we read that he had compassion on her. Now, that word compassion, at its root in the Greek, means from the innards or from the guts. Meaning that it's a deep-seated emotion. From the heart is the way we would put it in our vernacular today. Her plight stirred up inner turmoil within Jesus' own heart. He is genuinely moved by this woman's situation. Now throughout the Gospels, this is often the reaction Jesus has when he comes face to face with the human condition. Matthew 9 verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We see Jesus' compassion over and over and over again in the scriptures. And another place we see it is in his, the account of raising Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus in John chapter 11 raises his friend Lazarus. We read this in verse 33. When Jesus saw her, and that's referring to Mary, weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And then we have that shortest verse in all the scripture, Luke 11, verse 35. It simply says, Jesus wept. That's our Lord. That's our Lord. That's the compassion he feels. But if you're honest and at least if I'm honest, I should say, I often wonder, why does Jesus weep in that John 11 passage? And why does he weep here in this passage? Or why does he at least show compassion? I mean, if you think about it, he's about to raise Lazarus in John 11. And in today's text, he knows what he's going to do. Yet, he empathizes with this woman and grieves with her and he, and he weeps for Lazarus. So why does he do that? Why does he weep even though he knows he's about to fix everything? Well, I think, first of all, he weeps because he hates to see human suffering. Our Lord hates 
to see human suffering. More than just feeling sorry for those who suffer, Jesus weeps and has a deep, heartfelt compassion because he sees the calamity of sin. He sees what sin has done to people. He sees the destruction that sin has caused on creation and on his creatures. He sees the wages of man's sin. He sees that villainous intruder named death. A villain that has consumed every man and every woman since creation. Well, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah. But surely our Lord also grieves because he knows the horrific price that man's sin will even cost himself. He knows where his ministry is leading. It leads to a horrific cross, a place where the final battle between death and life will be waged. And that is why he came. He came not to just witness man's pitiful condition, but to put himself in it. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He came to identify with man in every way so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses, according to Hebrews 4.15. So friends, I want us to see and savor the deep, deep love of Jesus this morning. See and savor the mercy of our Savior, for he came to identify with us, and more than that, to experience death for us. As Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So we come here. He is moved with compassion, with pity. He looks at this grieving widow and says to her, do not weep. Now, this is it is an imperative here, but it's not a it's not a harsh command. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. This is a direct but gentle directive. It is said in anticipation of what he's about to do. You know, sometimes we hold our loved ones in our arm, whether it be a child or your wife, and, um, and you, you hold them in your arms and you say, don't cry, don't cry. But usually we say don't cry because we're helpless and we don't know what else to say. Or maybe even more selfishly, it's making us feel uncomfortable and we want them to stop. But in the end, when we say, don't cry, everything will be okay, we can do nothing about it. We can do nothing about it. But not Jesus. He gently tells this woman, do not weep because he's about to do something about it. For not only does this event demonstrate the deep pity and compassion that Jesus has towards mortal men, secondly, it displays the divine power that Jesus has to save mortal men. It displays his divine power. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So he comes up and touches the bier, this, this funeral, uh, um, basically like a cot that they would have been carrying this young man in. He touches it and he, he puts himself at that point in the position of becoming ceremonially unclean according to Leviticus 19, 11 through 16. 
But Jesus understood what it meant when his father said that he desired mercy and not sacrifice. But also, at the moment that this young man arises, what was unclean is no longer unclean. So he touches that funeral beer, and then as we read in the text here, it says the bearers stood still. They just stopped in their tracks. I love the imagery here. Do you see? Death, that old villain, had claimed another victory. And like a conquering warrior in the Roman Empire, he was carrying out a victory parade. A victory parade was taking place as this young man's body was making its way to its new home, the grave. But Jesus stops death in its tracks. Jesus puts death's victory parade on hold. And so the bearers stood still. Surely the the air at this point was, was thick with anticipation, thick with drama. Imagine the drama of the scene. What's Jesus going to do? Now, it's very important to understand here, and I haven't mentioned this yet, that this is the first, at least the first recorded raising of any dead person we have of Jesus in his earthly ministry. So up to this point, and I believe this is the first one chronologically, the other two are the raising of Jairus' daughter, that we'll read of later, and then, of course, Lazarus, which I've already mentioned. But this one chronologically came first. So the disciples had not seen Jesus raise anybody yet. And so they're wondering, what's going to happen here? So imagine you're there in the crowd, and Jesus has spoken to this bereaved widow, which was uncommon in and of itself. And then Jesus stops the procession, and then Jesus begins to speak again. Only this time he's not addressing the woman. He's looking intently at that dead body wrapped in a linen burial shroud. Looking straight at that dead body and he addresses the dead man. Now I imagine that the people were too stunned to start laughing. But I'm surely some of them must have thought that this man from Nazareth was just a a few bricks shy of a full load. Regardless, we read in verse 14. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And that's it. That's all he says. Now, I've been to plenty of funeral viewings. Um, and I've been to funeral viewings where people talk to the corpse. Okay, they, they'll Usually it's a grieving mechanism. Just like when people go to a, their loved one's gravesite and talks, quote-unquote, talks to their loved one. But I've never been in a funeral where the dead person speaks back. I think if I were ever at that type of funeral, I probably would be running out the door pretty freaked out. But in this case, we read here in verse 15, after Jesus tells the young man to rise, the dead man sat up and began to speak. Imagine the scene. Shock, fear, amazement, awe. Perhaps even some fainting going on. The crowd of followers accompanying Jesus had, had just seen him in, earlier in Luke chapter 7 where he healed someone, according to verse 2 of chapter 7, who was sick and at the point of death, But this isn't the point of death. This is death. And this surely shook everyone, not just the mother. Who was this man who did this? And who is this man who speaks to dead people? And they sit up and start talking. Now sometimes, maybe if you're like me, you kind of wish the gospel writers would give you more information. Because I really want to know what the man said. I mean, I just, I sat here this week and thought, what do you say? You know, when you, I mean, is it, get this get this stuff off of me. I don't know. You know, does he, do they get it off of him? And that's when he begins to speak. And he says, you know, mom, I just had the strangest dream. You know, it says he was a young man, which I'm guessing therefore he was a teenager. He probably just said, 
I'm hungry, Mom. You know, I don't know. But he sat up and he just began to speak. Now, why does Luke put that in there? Why even mention that he speaks? To show us that this man is alive. It's not just that his body's moving. He's now talking. Everything's functioning again, including his mind and his mouth. And he's speaking. So this man sat up and he spoke. And it was all in response to Jesus' word. Now, I think Luke wants us to see that all that Jesus did here was speak. Because Luke makes it very clear that Jesus touches the funeral beer, but that he only speaks to the man. I think Luke goes out of his way to want us to see that. What Jesus touched was not the man. He just touches the little cot thingy. The only thing he does to the man is that he speaks. And the man sits up. Now, there are two resurrection accounts in the Old Testament. Actually, there's three. But there's two where... where, where um, Two prophets raised a young boy, similar to this story. One of them's Elijah in 1 Kings 17. One's Elisha in 2 Kings 4. And both of those situations consisted of the prophet carrying out some physical act. He stretched himself out on top of the boy multiple times. And then, then it also, those passages record the, the prophet crying out to God and asking God, pleading to God to, to, to raise up the child. But in this case... Jesus doesn't do either, two, either one of those two things. He doesn't need to touch the body. And he doesn't even pray to his father. He simply looks at the body, speaks to it, and the body awakes. That's the supreme authority, the divine power that the Son of God possesses. Authority over life and death. Authority to speak life into existence. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He is Lord, the Ancient of Days, of whom Job said in Job 13.10, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He is, according to Acts 3.15, the author of life. He is the Supreme Lord, and yet, he is the Supreme Lord, yet, he is so gentle. And we see his tenderness on display again here in verse 15. It says, And Jesus gave him to his mother. It's a very tender phrase right there. Jesus presents him back to his mother. The giver of life presents the child back to his mother like a, like a doctor would do in a hospital when he brings the baby to the mother. No longer is she defenseless. No longer is she hopeless. Jesus has turned her mourning into joy. And in a very real way, with the raising of her son, Jesus has given her her life back too. And so this is a beautiful, beautiful story of Jesus' deep, deep love. But this event, more than just at demonstrating the deep pity that Jesus has towards mortal men and and also more than just displaying the divine power that Jesus has to save mortal men. The third thing I want us to see this morning is that this event is designed as definitive proof that Jesus' words are not that of mere mortal men. Verse 16 says that fear seized them all. Now that word fear is great awe. It seizes them and they glorified God, it says here, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. Now notice, they glorified God. They know that the power of life and death was only in the hands of Yahweh. 
So they rightly glorify God, but what they most likely didn't realize was that God in the flesh stood right there before them. Hopefully some of them realized it at this point, but probably there were many that didn't. So they speak accurately, but not quite fully when they say, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Yes, God had visited his people, but in a way that they never could have imagined. Yes, a prophet, but also a priest and the long-awaited king had arrived and he was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. So the words he spoke were not that of a mere mortal man. And this miracle was designed to show that Jesus' words are divine words. Now, let me show you that in a different way here this morning. I want you to see that Jesus' words are meant to be seen. Really what I want you to see is that Luke structures his narrative here in a way so that we know that the message of Jesus, not only what he says in this text, but what Jesus is communicating and saying all throughout the gospel during his earthly ministry is indeed the word of God and we need to listen to it. So let me show you how Luke does that. Because what they say here, when they say a great prophet has arisen among us, why do they say that? They say that because of the two passages of scripture I just mentioned to you a minute ago. Elijah and Elisha. That was their, that was their frame of reference. They see this boy rise up, they think, whoa, that's like Elisha. And like Elijah, a great prophet has arisen among us. So here's what I want to do. I want to see the striking parallels between today's text and 1 Kings 17, where Elijah raises up the widow's son. If you want to turn there, you can. And I'm going to, the story actually begins in 1 Kings 17, verse 8. But I'm going to start in verse 10, and I'm only going to read portions of it. But, but to kind of give you some background here, here, God has told Elijah to go to the Gentile town of Zarephath where he is to be cared for. There's a great famine in the land at the time and, and God has sent Elijah to this town so that he can be cared for. And then we read in verse 10 of chapter 17 of 1 Kings, it says this. So he arose and went to Zarephath and when he came to, and now here's the first parallel, when he came to what? The gate of the city. Well, there's the first parallel, the city gate. And then it says this, behold, there's that word, behold, a widow. Now there's the second parallel. A widow was there gathering sticks. Now he was told to look for a widow. And so he finally goes to the city gate. There's the widow gathering sticks. Now the reason she's gathering the sticks is because the famine is so bad. She's going to gather sticks to make some bread and it's, going to, it's the last of what she has. And so she's, her plan is pretty simple. Me and my son, we're going to eat and then we're going to die. That's, that's pretty much our plan. And so for the next six verses, we read of God's miraculous provision for the widow and her son and for Elijah. And then we read in verse 17 that the widow's son dies. And there's the next parallel. The death of the widow's son. And then we read in verse 19 where Elijah says these words. He said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid on him and on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Now let me just put a little parenthetical comment here. The Bible has no problem putting death in God's hands. Death may be a villain, but it's a villain on God's leash, okay? Verse 21 of 1 Kings 17. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times 
and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and, and here's the next parallel, brought him down from the upper room chamber in in the house, and actually here it is, here it is. He delivered him to his mother. Now those words that Luke uses today in the text when it says he gave him to his mother are the exact same words from 1 Kings 17, 23. Matter of fact, you could just say it's a quote. It's directly the same thing, same words. He brought the child, he delivered him to his mother. Now here's what I want you to see. Why is Luke telling the story in such a way as to draw these close parallels? Here's why. Listen to the next thing that the widow says to Elijah in 1 Kings 17, verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I think what Luke is trying to do here is say, see what's happening here? See what's happening and how it compares to what's happened before? And do you see how the widow reacted in 1 Kings? She recognized that this miracle confirmed the message. That this work, this wonder confirmed the word. That's why Jesus does this. He raises this child not only because he has compassion for this woman, which he does, but he's also showing us the message that I am giving you is truth. And you need to believe in it. That's what Luke is doing here. And so at the end of this story, what the people should be saying is, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And that is what we are supposed to be saying as well. So do you see it this morning? Do you see Jesus the God-man? Do you see the one who is the resurrection and the life? Do you see the one who speaks and makes dead men come alive? And more importantly, do you see that every word that comes from his mouth is truth? And so the miracle was made, was given so that we might believe the message of the gospel. So let me conclude this morning and let me first of all conclude by just saying, meditate, asking you to meditate upon the compassion of Jesus. Whatever you're going through in your life, whatever challenge you're facing, Jesus' love is deep enough to go there with you. And as a church, as the people of God, let us be compassionate people. Let us be people who care for the fatherless and the widow. Let us be people who care deeply about one another so much that there's, there's hurt in this body right here. There are plenty of people hurting in this body of believers. And we are meant to care for each other in such a way that we are exhibiting that deep, deep love of Jesus to one another. But let me also encourage you this morning, let me say to those who have believed in and who have accepted that message that Jesus wants us to believe in, the gospel message, let me remind you that you are here this morning because and only because Christ has already done a resurrection work in you. He, by his word, spoke to your heart and said, young man, young woman, 
Old man, old woman, I say to you, rise. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And when he spoke those words of life, your dead heart sat up. It awoke. You were born again, not because you deserved it or earned it, but because Jesus looked upon your pitiful condition and had compassion on you. And his compassion took him to the cross to absorb the death that you deserved and the death that I deserved. And he rose again so that he now says in Revelation 1, verse 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Oh yes, Christian, you are united to him so that his death became your death. And his resurrection became your resurrection. That villain, that villain called death, has been defeated. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Yes, these weak bodies, these weak bodies will continue on their march toward physical death, but physical death will not have the final say Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. For the Christian, and only for the true Christian, physical death is simply a doorway into true life. And more, more than that, we have great assurance that even our physical bodies will one day be raised up, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. It's worth reading it again. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and here it is, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need not fear the villain in our story. But unbeliever, this morning, I beg you to come to Jesus. You see that ancient villain, death? He's still tracking you down. You may feel like you have a good lead on him, but he always catches his prey. The wages of your sin have guaranteed it. So I urge you to turn from those sins and turn to Jesus and find life. Put your faith in him. Believe. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The one who believes will never die. For his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, friend, is your name in that book? You want your name to be in that book because Jesus says in John 5, 28, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The hour that Jesus speaks of there is described more fully in Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That old villain death has been defeated. But the question for you this morning is this. Will you remain an ally of death in defiant rebellion against God? Or will you abandon your insurrection and put your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and in doing so experience true life for the very first time? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word again. And Jesus, I want to just praise you and thank you this morning. Your deep, deep love. Father, I just, I pray that you'd help us as a church to be people who reflect your son's love in everything we do. May we have that deep, deep compassion for the pain that's not only represented in this room by people in this body, but the pain of those outside of this room. In a world that that has no answers, no matter what their worldview is, they don't have answers. And the thing they don't have answers for the most is death. So God, I pray that we would go with those compassionate answers. And we wouldn't be afraid to tell people the truth. And Lord, this morning, if there be anybody here who has never truly been born again, I pray, first of all, that your Holy Spirit would move and do a work in the heart. And then I pray, Lord, that they will, in obedience to your word and, and in conformity to your spirit, make that known. Tell someone here in this room, come talk to me at the end of the service, whatever it might be. But Lord, I pray that you would draw people into yourself. Snatch some more people this day, Lord, out of the hands of that villain. So God, we praise you, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move amongst us as we respond in song. As we bring our tithes, offerings, prayer requests, but also if anyone needs to talk to me as they come and talk about the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would have your way, Holy Spirit, Jesus, that you would be glorified. And that, Father, you would just take this offering that we give you, this song, and be pleased with it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.